Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. On March 8, 1939, J.R.R. Tolkien was invited to give the Andrew Lang Lectures at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He gave a paper called, at the time, Fairy Stories. Later in 1945, that was expanded into an essay, now known as On Fairy Stories, which was published in various places in the years to come, including Tree and Leaf, The Tolkien Reader, the Monsters and the Critics, and other essays. Uh, and in this essay, Tolkien tries to lay out his understanding of a fairy tale. He ends up disagreeing with most of the definitions of fairy tales and laying out what he sees as a vision of the true and the sort of archetypal fairy story. Today, I'm sitting down with Justin Lee, and we are going to explore J.R.R. Tolkien's vision of the fairy story. When we think of fairy tales, Justin, what do we usually think of? We think of Snow White. We think of Disney. We think of nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes, for sure. Um, We tend to think of, really, we think of German and French fanciful stories. Grim fairy tales, Cinderella. Cinderella. Yeah. All the things that we we know got Disneyfied, but we also know sort of had weird, sometimes twisted um, originals that we're sort of vaguely familiar with, maybe. Um, and what is Tolkien doing? I mean, 1939, this is such a charged moment to be talking yeah. about fantasy or fairy tales, what's so often treated as children's literature, mm-hmm. so often treated as escapist literature. Um, not something for serious study, not something for serious enjoyment by grown-ups, right? And he's talking about this in 1939, um, I think a week before Hitler invades Czechoslovakia, a few or a handful of months before he invades Poland. Um, he's talking in a context where things are going in a direction of serious world history on a scale that hasn't been seen in some time. And he's talking about fairy tales. Why? Yeah. What is going on? How could he get away with something so <laughs> almost absurd seeming? I, I don't know how he could get away with it because he wasn't quite Tolkien yet. Hmm. Um, he was becoming, he was Tolkien and becoming. Had he had he written The Hobbit by now? 1939 March. He certainly hadn't re- written Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, so he was kind, he was, he was kind of himself. He's a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature. Yeah. He's teaching, he's teaching, um, he's probably, what is he teaching? He's teaching Beowulf. He's teaching mm-hmm. some. Sir Gawain. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And so he comes to give these lectures on on, on children's stories, people think, yeah. on fairy tales, right? Yeah. How does he define the fairy story, uh, maybe say just differently, but how, how does he, what is his actual vision of what entails a fairy story? What makes it a fairy tale to begin with? Well, uh, so, so first he, you know, he proceeds by way of subtraction. You know, here is, here's what it's not. Um, it is not a story about little dainty things with wings that we call fairies that could fit inside of a cowslip. Mm. That is not a fairy. Uh, that's this weird invention of maybe the 19th century. 
And Arthur the, Rackham, we think of mm-hmm. maybe his drawings, which are beautiful. Yeah. Like the Peter Pan kind of fairies. Tinkerbell. Right. Yeah. Right? Tinkerbell. Kind of like Tinkerbell is not a fairy. Sprites. I just, yeah. Yeah. Fairies are basically interchangeable with elves, and elves are not little things that hop around the North Pole and make presents. <laughs> they are <laughs> they are Elrond, they are Lord of the Rings, big, tall, beautiful, fierce, maybe terrifying creatures that are not human, um, but in the way but in a way that helps us understand better what it is to be human. Mm. Yeah, he often describes fairy as this dark and terrifying landscape filled with creatures like this mm-hmm. that, as you're saying, is not sort of the domesticated Victorian um, sprite uh, yeah. that is sprinkling fairy dust everywhere so that kids can fly. Yeah, right. yes, and he has a lot of disdain for that. And so he describes a fairy story as something which takes place in a realm. Yeah, well, or not necessarily in the realm. Okay. But uh, so we tend to think of the fairy story as a story about fairies or something of that nature. But it's not properly about the denizens of fairy, mm-hmm. the realm of fairy. It's about the realm itself. Okay, um, the, so it is about a place. It is about a place, um, even when even when the story doesn't take place in the place, even when it's just on the borderlands or when glimpses of the place are offered, um, kind of a, a breaking into our world of the other world. Right. So he says fairy contains, and he capitalizes it throughout as, mm-hmm. a, as a proper name of a place. Well, and we, should, and we right? should make sure that people are imagining the correct word. We're not... Right. So capital F, A-E. With an umlaut. With an umlaut. R-I-E. And he doesn't change the spelling of that throughout, right? He right. is very deliberate about this proper name, fairy. And and it's a beautiful word, and there's a rhetorical effect of doing that throughout, even though you know he could spell it capital F A I R Y, right? And and that would be, you know, more you know a modern anglicism mm-hmm. of of the older form. But he wants that older form. He wants that umlaut. He wants the the weirdness of it, because it it captures the alienness mm. of, of the place. So he says fairy contains many things um, besides elves and fays, besides dwarves and witches and trolls, besides dragons and giants. It also holds the seas, mm-hmm. the sun, the moon, the sky, the earth, and all things that are in it, tree and bird, water and stone, wine and bread, and ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. So as you're saying, it's not just a story about elves or mm-hmm. necessarily a story about fays or dwarves or witches or trolls. Um, it is a world. Yeah. It is a world entire, sun, mm-hmm. moon, sky, and we ourselves, mortal men, when we are enchanted. It is the other world. <laughs> you know, we're, we're so used to this stuff as it's been... Um, elaborated and bastardized through Marvel comics, mm. you know, but you know, it, it's a world, it's like earth two or earth three, mm. you know, it's, it, it's another version of here um, that is importantly different. Right. So it's like, uh, it's recognizable as to certain of its elements. There are mm-hmm. trees, there are leaves, there are stones, there's water, but it's defamiliarized. It's yeah. made strange. Right? Yeah. It's, it, it's unsettling in that mm-hmm. it's not exactly what we know. 
right um and and including having uh, other denizens or other creatures or inhabitants that may be glimpsed and maybe sensed yeah so uh, one way maybe to think of it is um going to Edgar Allan Poe who who famously and I think it's uh, Ligeia um co-ops Francis Bacon's uh, line about beauty you know that there's no great beauty without some strangeness in the proportions mm. and and so if you could just imagine a world strange in the proportions and and not just literal geometric proportions but um proportions of light proportions of meaning um things are things are different and there is a deep beauty in that difference he describes at one point um, the creation or the artist who creates fairy or inhabits that that sort of secondary world as being able to paint the leaves of trees with silver Mm -hmm. instead of with just greens and and yellows and and browns and stuff Um, so that slight alteration he makes a whole section um, emphasizing the adjectival Mm-hmm. that the linguistic role of the adjective is sort of the the major uh, tool or weapon of the creator of, of fairy tales of mm-hmm. of this sub-created world um and and yet as you say or as as he acknowledges often disregarded children's mm-hmm. nursery rhymes uh something you grow out of something that's fun and we always yeah. love reintroducing it to kids right um, right but something that you of course grow out of something that you move on from and something that can't be taken seriously or if it is it's like problematic because it's seen to be some sort of weird escapism some Mm -hmm. sort of weird subreddit for a bunch of nerds to like sort of write fan fiction or something well and and it is all those things (laughs) but but uh we'll get into that in a moment okay (laughs) Um, but But yeah uh, but why uh it's because they're useful and what do you mean I mean that you can teach kids using fairy tales. You can ah. teach adults using fairy tales. They're they Moral, are morals yeah. uh, ready made. They're not potentially. They're not necessarily intrinsically didactic mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know all, having all these propositional meanings. Do this, mm-hmm. don't do that. Right. But experientially, you know, they they have moral meaning that is that is rich. And especially with like Grimm's fairy tales, there's an element of survival wisdom hmm. uh, embedded in them. And, and so the idea being um, what is true about the world mm-hmm. is that it is a dark and dangerous place. And that is yeah. something that kids need to be aware of. They sense it themselves. Mm-hmm. And that these are maybe ways that people sort of gravitated to sort of introducing children to the difficult and the dark um, yeah. aspects of the world um, in its folk history, especially in the, the folk tradition. Yeah, uh, for which sure. Which is why, as you're saying with Grimm's and others, they are so often twisted, sometimes mm-hmm. morally ambiguous because yeah. that is the experience of the world. Like if you're talking about a kid walking home from school and you don't want them interacting with strangers of a mm-hmm. certain kind, or you know, there are dangers out there in the ordinary world that yeah. fairy tales bring to life. Yeah, or, 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 when, or when a witch comes to the door and tries to kill you once, don't let her in again. <laughs> don't let her try to kill you twice. And again. Right, right. Uh, because the third time, third time is the right, charm right. in the fairy tale. <laughs> you know, literally. there are magical numbers. <laughs> but, but regarding the creepiness, yeah, yeah, yeah. if we think about Snow White, you know, she's seven for like the whole story. Okay, so and this is the 
the actual original the actual the, original the, the collection of originals yeah. right it's yeah sort by of the composite. Grimm brothers okay and you know and so from our perspective in the 21st century we read this because we've been trained to read in certain ways mm-hmm. and we we come to this text and we and we see oh my god she's seven and then it doesn't say she gets any older and she is married by the end of this mm. and not just married but married to a prince mm. who fell for her when she was dead very in a strange co- in a coffin and <laughs> And so the dwarves, you know, a glass coffin, a glass, yeah, I mean, a lovely glass coffin. She is in the, in the coffin. The prince just comes along and and sees her and and says to the dwarves, "I must possess her. Hmm. Not not I must kiss her. I must wake her up and and fall in love with her. But this corpse, this beautiful corpse, I must possess it." So that's super weird. It's right? it's totally weird. But uh, but you know all of these different things we can begin to unpack mm. and we can see how, you know, if you're living in the 16th, 17th century, um, sex is wrought with death. Mm. You know, you are, if you are a woman, uh, you might die in childbirth. Mm. And so there's this intrinsic connection between um, sexuality and, and the peril of uh, childbirth. Mm. Uh, the story opens with her mother dying in childbirth. Mm. And so that, you know, these, these themes are all there and they're pressed together because it's not a long story. Right. And something that happens in fairy, and this is something Tolkien talks about, is that time does not always work in fairy the way it works in the human world. Mm-hmm. And so in fairy tales, you often see this, this interesting compression. And so the, the idea of the passage of time would have just been understood for the readers. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually have seven refrains of the queen going to the mirror, doing her thing. Mm-hmm. And and so there's this uh, intimation that probably seven years have passed. So she's 14, okay. which is a marriageable age by right. the end of the story. Right. But we don't see any of that hmm. uh, because we're not attuned to that kind of compaction right. or compression. Or those signatures yeah. that may have been uh, understood by original hearers or yeah. um, those and, more familiar with those kinds of stories. And also, this, these aren't the kind of questions you would ask. Mm. You, w- you wouldn't ask why she's seven the whole time. Mm. Uh, you would understand that this is a story being told to seven-year-olds right? And, and that maybe it wouldn't occur to the teller to take care to make sure that you're aging the character throughout the story right. because you want to involve the reader intimately, or sorry, the, the hearer. Mm-hmm. Intimate, intimately. So it doesn't have the same um, preoccupations as what we think of as as realist fiction or, or whatever, right. where you need to make sure everything's very clear and upfront and it needs mm-hmm. to all be sort of foregrounded as yeah. to things like just the passage of time. So mm-hmm. one of the disturbing or unsettling or defamiliarized elements of fairy is, as mm-hmm. you're saying, this compression or ambiguity of how time itself is unfolding. Yeah. So one one great example, and we have, I mean, there's so many examples like this. Mm. We just go to C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Right. He makes this, that that's one of the most sort of uh, surprising elements of that mm. is the way that time passes in Narnia yeah. being so utterly different than how it passes in, in England. And it's, I, I remember always feeling unsettled by that. Yeah. Uh, as the kids return, like they, they're hardly a day older, they're just yeah. a little ways older. And 
ages of the of the of yeah. the other land has and, like transpired. And their, you know, their palace is in ruins. Right. And their friends are gone. Everyone's mm-hmm. died. Like yeah. <laughs> it's just like an extraordinary yeah. weird. I remember as a kid being like, What do you what do you do with yeah, that? I felt like there where's was tumness. Yeah. <laughs> like it did it did it was one of the most sort of strange things trying to like resolve because it wasn't under their control. Mm-hmm. And and I always thought, you know, in the sort of in the Peter Pan sort of Neverland way, which is also sort of weirdly timeless world. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that you could, you know, that you could dip in, I always thought of it as, yeah, you like visit this place, you know, it's like right. going to Paris or something, having friends like a pen pal and you go but visit them. It's not but for it's, you. Yeah. <laughs> it is a world unto itself. Right. And that's something that is very important for Tolkien, um, that that fairy is its own world. Right. That this is not for them. This is not a a fun little escape for the Pevensey children. You yeah. Know, whenever they want to kind of get away from things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. They are summoned. Right. And <laughs> and well, and that is such a wonderful sort of turn which he addresses in the lecture, um, which is you know the typical view of fairy tales as escape, mm-hmm. um, and that they and and that even within the context there of how fairy works and how time itself works there, it doesn't allow it to be your escape on mm-hmm. your terms in the way that you might want to sort of instrumentalize yeah. an escape from yeah. your world. Um, it it subdues or as you say summons. Right. Um, in a different way. He ad- he addresses this issue of language. You, you mm-hmm. make this uh, important point about how he spells the word mm-hmm. fairy, um, making it strange and original at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he makes this is this claim that myth is a feature of language, that, that yeah. there is something about what it means to be creatures who use language that uh, we are predisposed, that there is an inescapable web of these kinds of stories or structures. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of maybe unpack that a little bit or talk a little bit about what he refers to eventually as the cauldron of story? Yeah, so, so he notes that you know, when he's talking a bit about the, the origin of the fairy tale, that these kinds of stories occur universally. Uh, it's not just this Northern European thing. Mm. And it's, uh, or it's not just an Indo-European language family thing. It is, it is a universal feature of human experience that, that we tell these kinds of stories. Uh, of course, they're inflected differently in different linguistic traditions. But ultimately, um, you know, he, he comes up with this really profound metaphor. And he will toggle back and forth between calling it the pot of soup or mm. the cauldron of story. And cauldron mm. of story is obviously a much more beautiful term. <laughs> uh, even if I'm like really hungry, yeah, I am going to go for the cauldron of story, not the pot of soup. Not the pot of soup. Well, he gets to the soup image when he's talking about how people try to dissect or study mm-hmm. fairy tales, right? Because there's obviously a whole school of thought that, okay, these are just psychological sort of, you know, hallucinatory right. sort of fever dreams of fear um, mm-hmm. of, of adolescence, of some of the things that yeah. we talked about with Snow White. Of course, every culture is going to have its, at, mm-hmm. at being mortal human beings, going to have the same psychological spikes that are going to yeah. need to find their way into narrative or something like this. Um, but he talks about how, yeah, that's where that image, I think, comes from because he talks about how it's like analyzing... Um, 
um, trying to analyze the, or I'll just read the quote, we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's talking about, you know, the sort of murder to dissect, right? This yeah. analytical way of approaching stories, which already presupposes they're not for me, they're for kids, mm-hmm. right? And now I'm going to tell you how primitive folklore, you know, yeah. sort of, un, uh, you know, unwound because there was, it was a pre-scientific world, and, mm-hmm. right? This this sort of incredibly arrogant but explanatory um, pseudoscientific yeah. kind well, of well, and this is the world that he lives in as right, well. He's right. a philologist, right? Yeah, which, which is, is a one, one I, I love ex- trying to explain to my students what philology is, and go, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's just just unpack it. You know, uh, what philos, mm-hmm. love, and um, logos. You know, the word, but more than just the word, the um, the structure of meaning. Right. Love and, of language, the love of meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's a it's a comparative discipline. If you're a philologist, you don't become a philologist until you have been a philologist for like twenty right. years. It's you just have like to you be <laughs> steeped and beyond proficient with multiple languages. Yeah. Um it, this is no longer something people are trained in hardly yeah. at all anymore. Yeah, um, because we no, still have something called comparative literature, but it's become something very different than that. Yeah, and I, yeah, it's it's a it's less than a watered down version of philology. But philology, I mean, this is the sort of fountainhead of what has become or what became later on just literature studies, mm-hmm. the English major, all these kinds of sort of things that we have done yeah. and uh, things that we're trained in. Um, but philology was sort of the taproot when people were not uh, hyper-specialists. They were generalists who were specialists at everything that made them generalists, right? Like they they were excellent at all of the Romance languages and all of these different various sort of Indo-European forms of those languages. Mm -hmm. And so they could genuinely see um, the pot of soup. They could yeah. genuinely see yeah. or the web or the root and branch system in a way mm-hmm. that is almost completely something that we're blinded to. Yeah. So it's almost like these people like Tolkien and, and mm-hmm. Lewis in his way as well, of course, um, but Tolkien even more specializes on the linguistic side. Um, these people almost don't exist anymore. Right. So it's almost like hearing from someone who uniquely mm-hmm. could and did see this cauldron of story throughout all sorts of diverse traditions um, and is sort of telling us about it mm-hmm. in a way that we usually specialize in one little slice. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the it's the academic version of, you know, a superhero or something who is able to see uh, more than just the visible spectrum of light. Mm. You know, in, in every... Um, moment you know in every linguistic performance even this one right now mm-hmm. um, there is way more data than what we are aware of right right so it's a rising from i mean it's almost like an ecosystem or an atmosphere um that is that some have called sort of just what collective unconscious i yeah. mean there's been there's been bad or cheap right. forms of this. this is why it's kind of dangerous sometimes maybe to use these words but um but the way told let's let's you describe the way tolkien yeah. uses that so you know so you can think of it as the collective unconscious um but be sure to give it a linguistic inflection the uh the idea with tolkien is is that you know language evolves over time it changes and branches into new languages and all the time it's carrying with it its stories. 
and um, language always functions through difference and it functions through echoes and the recognition of echoes and an intimation of the source of echoes what you would find in classical music where we have just intricate variations on themes you know that might have originated in Gregorian chant in the late mm. Middle Ages. And sometimes you have a great work of art or a great work of religious literature uh, that um, has an outsized influence on the trajectory of the development of language and story. And so the, uh, the metaphor he's using with the pot of soup or the cauldron story, you know, these, these stories with, of outsized influence are like bigger pieces of meat mm. in the cauldron mm. that are adding more flavor to the whole thing. Right. So, so right now, um, I mean, I, I'll say this without any shame whatsoever. Lord of the Rings is the, is the most influential piece of literature of the 20th century. So it, you, mean, you can begin to list the things that would not exist today were it not for Lord of the Rings having right. existed. The entire genre of fantasy. Yeah. 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 You don't have Harry Potter. Right. You don't have, you probably don't have Star Wars. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, because Star Wars is a fantasy. It's not science fiction. Right. And... Yeah, all you need to do is try to figure out what a lightsaber is to know that. And you go, oh, it's a magic crystal. <laughs> oh, okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so you're saying there are, there are certain moments of artistic achievement and effect of just mm -hmm. a popularity of just something yeah. just completely taking over, um, which you could visualize as a, as a large chunk of some mm -hmm. kind of meat or something in this pottage or this in the soup that's just affecting the flavor of the broth around right. it more than other chunks, even though there's a lot of different things in that soup, right? Yeah, and if you're a writer um, you're going to tell a story, you are dipping a ladle into the pot of soup. Mm. You're dipping a ladle into the cauldron of story. Are you saying there are no original creations? There are no <laughs> original Creation. Well, we'll I'll, I'll stipulate this: okay. there are no, there are no ultimately original sub creations. Okay, so this is is the language that Tolkien uses, which is really essential. He calls uh, human beings, uh, artists, uh, storytellers, sub creators. That we are not primary or we're not um, first world creators because we cannot bring something out of nothing in the yeah. material. Uh, world, but we can dip the ladle into mm -hmm. this inherited kind of world and cauldron mm -hmm. of story and experience of, of our humanity, and we can compose mm -hmm. from pre-existing material yeah. um, and shape it in such a way that it has its own originality yeah. as to the form and as to the inflection and as to whatever, emphases mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, it is what he calls a sub-creation. It is taking mm -hmm. materials that were already there um, yep. and bringing those into a particular form in life. Yeah, and, and that, that remixing, mm. um, you know, that, that uh, riffing yeah. is, um, is original. And in, in the same way, like with your language of riffing, it, mm -hmm. it is like jazz, right? Yeah. Where you, you are hearing for the first time it in that way. Yeah. Right? And, and, and yet it is this kind of 
uh, form of, of riffing off of a theme or a melody, um, but depending on the instruments, the, the, the players, the time, the place, the audience, right, any number of factors, um, it will not ever be that way exactly again. So it has its, mm-hmm. it has, it's original in that sense. It's uh, unique in that, yeah. in that form. You know, another another thing maybe worthwhile to to bring in is is understanding, you know, how texts function rhetorically um, in terms of the relationship between writer and audience. What so, do you mean? So, um, like that texts are written with audience in mind, sometimes, and that shapes the way it's written or the yeah, way a story is told. Sometimes, yeah. But you know, so so think about it this way: you you are an author, and you you know, you write your story and you have a particular intention. You hope that your reader will experience it in a certain way. Uh, maybe if you're a very good writer, then you have um, done everything that's possible to ensure that that's the most likely outcome. Um, and then, but you don't, you don't get a guarantee who your reader is because you're writing with a certain set of experience and a, a certain linguistic unconscious background um, that that shapes the meaning of the text for you. Hmm. You're not fully aware of right. even your most intentional. I mean, you can't you can't be completely intentional about everything because you're not right. fully aware of how you have already been formed. Yeah, to just think and you ha- be. You have access to a certain amount of the pot of soup. Right. Your reader might have the same access, similar access, or might have uh, limited access hmm. or incredibly expansive access. Uh, you don't know, and and a lot of that depends on time and place, culture, um, educational experience, all these things is not necessarily in your control as a writer, and so something that every text does, every story does, is it tries to create its ideal reader. Um, it's asking the reader to step into a role, and to be the reader that experiences the story as it's written. It's like a summoning. Yeah. 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 He gives almost I mean he he gives obviously theological right um weight to the role of the sub creator in his um fairly well known maybe for those who are into the inklings and studying uh Tolkien, Lewis, Williams and such. Um he wrote a poem called Mythopoeia um in which he kind of it kind of gives a a sort of uh, melodic um, theology of the sub-creator. And part of that poem reads this, this way. Although now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light and sowed the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused, that right has not decayed we make still by the law in which we are made. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, we can end it right there if we want, <laughs> if we want to. Because I mean, just re- just read this. Act. Just read. It's just beautiful. Read Tolkien. Read <laughs> read Mythopoeia. Read on fairy stories, and don't listen to us. I know it's just so good. But here, so here's long is strange, nor holy change. <laughs> the rags of lordship once mm. he owned. So he is saying that we have become sub creators of the kind that we are mm-hmm. after the fall, mm-hmm. and. And that this is an act that has not totally gone out. The light has not yeah. been completely extinguished and that we were made in the image of the maker. Yeah. And we think about, uh, you know, Paul's, you know, Paul's claim that, you know, someday we will know as we are fully mm, known. First Corinthians. Yeah. yeah. Now we see it in a glass darkly. Imagine hmm. the kinds of stories we would write if we... Where once we are there. And he says that as much or something like that when he says, I was caught up into the third heaven, yeah. but cannot speak mm-hmm. of what I saw. And that's another beautiful thing that, that Tolkien says is that you go to fairy and you, when you return, you feel compelled to tell about what you've seen, but there is no language to capture the experience. Right. And he literally has to make fairy the word. Mm-hmm. strange yeah. to try to capture that he's saying something other than what people first think of when they yeah. hear the word. And mm-hmm. and then famously, of course, um, creates an entire language of mm-hmm. Elvish and maybe various yeah. <laughs> various languages yeah. right? um, to fully create a truly immersed um, sub-creation, a mm-hmm. secondary world that can be believed in um, and is consistent and is... Mm-hmm. is not just some wink wink you know um here's a little story i'm telling um but is itself a world uh in the in the way that uh, our world is suffused with language memory history all the things that he mm-hmm. all, all the notes and all the extra work that went into the lord of the rings that didn't appear in the lord of the rings yeah. is everything we're talking about when we talk about the cauldron of yeah. story and how yeah. you or i might try to write a story but really behind it is just this world mm-hmm. of of stuff yeah. and beauty and language and history that we are even sort of somewhat aware of, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like there is only the Lord of the Rings because there's the Silmarillion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it wasn't there for us to see when Lord right. of the Rings appears, right? Now when he says, again, he's, he also takes on in the essay that people talk about fantasy or fairy stories as escapist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, 1939... And well, 2020. Um, but he says, Why should a man be scorned if finding himself in prison he tries to get out and go home? Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- why, why would we describe this as escapist, i.e., that's bad, dangerous, childish, naive, immature, whatever that might mean to people? Um, if not to say that this real fallen world. Um, of, of what he says, jailers and prison walls mm-hmm. is somehow supposed to be more true. Mm-hmm. Um, and theologically for Tolkien, a Catholic or any Christian, um, that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. That this world, this fallen world of jailers and prison walls is infinitely less true and less mm-hmm. real than what we, what we hear about uh, yeah. in, in, in our tradition, in our stories. Yeah, well... I mean, yeah. If you're if you're in prison and you don't want to be out of prison, you are not sane. So he is emphasizing the escapist impulse is a sane impulse. Mm. Uh, that it's, you know, that you are being human 
as you're meant to be uh, when you when you desire that. And and so <laughs> asking the question, you know, why why would anyone tell the uh, the imprisoned person not to feel that way? Well, the answer is that well, the person telling them wants them to be in prison. Right. He in the expanded when he when he expands it to the essay in 1945, mm-hmm. he adds this this part um, where he says uh, it's only potentially from sincere error that people will confuse the escape of the prisoner mm-hmm. with the flight of the deserter. Mm-hmm. He says just so a party spokesman might have labeled departure from the misery of the Fuhrer or any other Reich, and even criticism of it as treachery. Mm-hmm. Not only do they confound the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter, but they would seem to prefer the acquiescence of the Quisling to the resistance of the Patriot. Yeah. And so they're literally uh, using the, the Nazification mm-hmm. of, of the real world, right? Um, and saying that this is like telling someone in the resistance mm-hmm. what you're doing is is fantasy, is, is meaningless. Yeah. What you should do is just go along, yeah. is just participate in, in this reality of the Third Reich, yeah. right? Like, I mean, he's talking about now fantasy as resistance or rebellion, true patriotism mm-hmm. in that metaphor, um, and sort of completely flipping it over yeah the escape to the real the escape to the truth the escape to the good the escape to something um that is more and that must be fought for um or is progressively being lost i'm gonna follow that up uh, with uh another another quote this is something that i I use with my students uh, to, to help unpack this idea that um, you know, the meaning of a text is in many ways dependent on the well of experience the reader brings to it mm. and the, the interaction between the text as it is um, and as it was written and what the reader can comprehend based on their own experience, their own tools of understanding. When Tolkien's criticizing the, you know, the, the religious douchey people who... <laughs> don't like fantasy and, yeah. and just say this is mere escapism you know yeah, you're yeah, not yeah. you're not being realist you know how about you put your hand to the plow and right. you know do do the work of real life do the re- work of real life yeah fantasy can of course be carried to excess it can be ill done it can be put to evil uses it may even delude the minds out of which it came but of what human thing in this fallen world is that not true men have conceived not only of elves but they have imagined gods and worshipped them, even worshipped those most deformed by their author's own evil. But they have made false gods out of other materials, their nations, their banners, their monies, even their sciences and their social and economic theories have demanded human sacrifice. I quote that to my students and ask them what, what does he mean, human sacrifice? Mm. And so far, none of them have made the connection that, well, this was this was written and published uh, at the end of the war, uh, when every when all the revelations of the Holocaust had come out, mm. um, and Nazism as a social and economic theory, mm-hmm. and you know that that's invisible to them, um, and yet Tolkien could have relied on his audience 
understanding that immediately. And for him and for his original audience, that rhetorical impact is so much stronger because he doesn't say the word Nazi. Because they know it, they bring that knowing to the text, and the meaning and force is enhanced because of their participation um, in the text Hmm. uh, in constructing that meaning. He's saying, look, we have just lived the experience Mm -hmm. of turning to idolatry, Mm -hmm. this supposed real of nation, economic theory, social reform, right? Any number of whatever propaganda or whatever uh, nationalistic or whatever, whatever political language has been used, right? We will make gods, we will Mm -hmm. make myths, we will make fantasy of anything. Right. um, And we always do. We always already are doing this kind of work, but without acknowledgement, without understanding. And he's also implicitly, and I guess explicitly as well, offering the making of true fantasy, true fairy tales, um, as um, an answer to that, as a way to tear down idols, Mm. uh, as a reaction against idolatry. The resistance of the true patriot. Yeah, not the blood and soil patriot who looks mm-hmm. the other way as the trains go by. Right. Um, but the resistance of the true patriot whose nation is is the real, whose nation mm-hmm. is the kingdom, whose belonging is is in a deeper realm. So so he, he follows up the, the quote I just read mm-hmm. with, fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made. And not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. You know, we, we can go back to the, you know, the first of the Ten Commandments, which is very interestingly, another way to say that is, um, you shall make as I have made. Right. You shall make no graven image mm-hmm. to replace me. Yeah. In as much as I have made creatures, mm-hmm. right? If you are to make, you are to subcreate, yeah. not try to remake me. Yeah. In your image, you mm-hmm. have already been made in mine. Um, so this this authoring mm-hmm. and reauthoring as a way of returning. I mean, the image of the escape prisoner it, as a returning home. You know, escape is not not an end in itself. Uh, it's a right. means. You said it could be a, a morbid delusion or, or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. His his phrase is. If men were ever in a state in which they did not want to know or could not perceive truth, facts, or evidence, then fantasy would languish until they were cured. If they ever get into that state, it would not seem at all impossible. Fantasy will perish and become morbid delusion. Mm. One way to think about this is that pure escapism, escapism for its own sake, um, is, is not good. The fantasy becomes you know, your provisional reality. Right. And, um, and the longer you're there without the intention to, to leave and to return, mm-hmm. you know, the, the more dangerous it becomes for your mind. Like an opioid of, yeah. any, of any other kind. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A and, disconnect potentially. And so the, you know, it's a fantasy is a, or sorry, escape is a means to what Tolkien calls recovery. Right. So, you know, if you go to ferry, and and you don't die, and you uh, and you return. Um, you had better have been changed mm. by that experience. Um, 
and there probably is no returning without that change, mm. and which is what makes the realm so perilous. And the change, you know, I'm thinking of the Pevensey kids or the mm-hmm. The change may not appear obvious, mm-hmm. right? When they return from the wardrobe, they are. It's been minutes, right? Yeah. It, they were in the same clothes. They haven't aged. Mm-hmm. They haven't, right? All these things. The change is then something internal and perceptual, yeah. or, or as to their perception. As as a quick aside, yeah. Imagine uh, going to Narnia, growing up, being like a man. Yeah, I, and <laughs> I know where you're going. And it's, it's and too then, weird. And then returning to the, the human world. <laughs> And and you still have to go through puberty. And you're again. nine again. You're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just like <laughs> what? I, I just gra- I just got out of high school. Yeah. No. <laughs> so okay, but the change, yeah, that's part yeah, of the disturbing. You, you, if that's if that's happened to you, you better know how to do it right. Now that you got to do it again, you got a second chance. <laughs> Um, okay, so but the, the change is a change of the soul. Yeah, it's a change of yourself. It's a change of how you view the world around you. You may not see trees anymore as having leaves of silver. Mm-hmm. Now you see trees as more tree or more beautiful. Yeah. They're more vivid yeah. because you have seen them strange and right. you no longer take them maybe for granted. You, you you're able to see the world as you're meant to see it, which is to say the fall. You know, our sin covers our eyes in fleam. We will we'll, we'll br- bring in your favorite <laughs> you. word. I love my 15th century terms. Yeah. So our experience of reality is always lensed. Paul says as much, right? Yeah. Now we see through a glass darkly. Yeah. We're, we're looking through lenses, and those lenses have a lot of crap on them. Yeah. And the journey into fairy wipes off some of the crap. Mm. And, and certain journeys into fairy wipe off certain kinds of crap. Mm. You know, one of the examples I use with my students is, um, you know, because everybody's read Harry Potter. I I like to, you know, talk about the seventh book and Snape. When Harry learns who Snape really is and what he's really been up to, that he has been sacrificing his own life, his own happiness, because he loved his mother and now he loves Harry Mm. for her sake. And he has you know, martyred himself, you know, for this boy's sake. If you're reading that, and that doesn't, like, bust you up, first of all, just, you know, I don't know, just go out into the woods and <laughs> and and just, you know, absent yourself from the rest of us no. because you don't, you don't have a place among the living. <laughs> no, I don't. So, so I asked my students, have any of you um, ever loved somebody who didn't reciprocate don't raise your hands. Right. <laughs> and, and Or have you ever been loved by someone and you couldn't reciprocate in the way they wanted? Mm. But maybe you read this book, you, you see this relationship, you see that Severus Snape mm. has this unrequited love and everything hinges on that. Uh, it, uh, that love transforms into something utterly beautiful and, self, and self-sacrificial mm. and Christ-like. Mm. And you return from that story, if you are being faithful to that story, uh, it will allow you to see those relationships that you have lived uh, with new eyes. Mm. And that doesn't mean that if you've been hurt, that that goes away or right. that, sh- that or that that should be discounted. But but that there are potentialities there in that experience that uh, we need to allow for. 
there are beauties there to be seen that we're not always capable of seeing. I can vividly remember when I read Lord of the Rings all the way through mm-hmm. and the ache I had mm-hmm. at the end of the book, it was, it was an ache for my life to be caught up in something mm-hmm. so meaningful. And it was also vividly an ache for better friends. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't like, oh, if I could, I mean, part of me was like, yeah, I'd love to live there, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. But it really was like, mm-hmm. I wish I had closer friends. I wish, I wish my closest friendships could participate in that kind of depth and the kind of meaning yeah. or the kind of self-sacrifice and the yeah. kind of um, belief mm-hmm. that was shared amongst uh, certain yeah. of that fellowship. And I, I remember just like feeling there was an ache for friendship mm-hmm. uh, at the end of that epic that was startling. So you're a much better human than I am <laughs> because my ache was <laughs> to have just an epic staff. Yeah. <laughs> that that I could fight Balrogs with. So much so that when I was in Michigan, found. I found this just incredible just fallen cedar sapling um with with this incredible like um goat horn not goat but yeah yeah i guess goat horn swirl at the top and and i i have this thing to this day that's incredible because and and i know that you know you had eyes to see it i see it for what it is and I, I ha- it's back in Indiana. It's in my, it's in my bedroom, the staff. Yeah, the house I grew up in. It's just, it's just waiting. It, we will be reunited. Yes, Let, we have to, we have to bring this home. Okay, uh, and I, and we have to talk about eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. And 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 what a weird is, word. Yeah, eucatastrophe. So the prefix there, um, eu, but you meaning good, a good catastrophe. Think of eulogy when you stand at the like euthanasia. <laughs> careful. Like, like. Uh, <laughs> Who's good? A good yeah, Thanatos. Depends on what you. <laughs> depends on how you define good, surely. Um, but like a eulogy, uh, when you stand and give a good word about the departed dead, um, a eu catastrophe Euf- is euphoria. There you go. Is a good catastrophe. Um, eu- euphemism. As opposed to the discatastrophe <laughs> of a a bad uh, a bad turn, right? So Tolkien says the consolation of fairy stories. The joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe. The sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, universal final defeat. Mm -hmm. And insofar as Evangelion, or the gospel, the language there for the good news, insofar as Evangelion uh, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Mm-hmm. 
So he here is describing what again gets relegated to the nursery rhyme or mm-hmm. the, you know, you tell a children's story and they have a happy ending so that everyone feels better and can go to sleep yeah. at night. And he's describing the turn in a fairy tale as a remarkable grace, mm-hmm. never to be expected to recur. Mm-hmm. It's not automatic, it's not magic in the technique sense. It's not uh, willed and performed by mm. creatures within that. It's a, it's almost something that comes to that scene unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, he but says it catches the breath, mm-hmm. lifts the heart, can turn uh, grown men and women to tears um, in a way that almost any other form of art cannot. But it's not Deus ex machina, right? Uh, it's not the you know the the author of the story just you know, getting his characters into a jam and then diving in and just plucking them out. Right, which which is the, the magician technique thing, right. right? The Deus Ex Machina is the machinery mm-hmm. of, uh, let's just not do that, right? Yeah. Let's just reverse it's, this real fast. It's intrinsic to the structure of the story. And by that you mean it is discovered in hindsight to have mm-hmm. always been latent right. in the narrative. Right. That it occurs as a miracle that somehow could have been anticipated. Yeah. Um, once it's seen, it's seen everywhere. Yeah. It, the, you know, p- people who are writers and have read any book on writing craft, uh, story craft, uh, know that, you know, the ending is supposed to be both surprising and inevitable. Mm-hmm. And and that those two things must be wedded together uh, for the ending to to land, and that's not easy to do. Mm. And and if you can pull that off, that it there is something godlike in pulling that off well. Mm. And yeah, you know there you know you are participating in in the creative um, joy uh, of our creator when you pull that off. And you know what's so interesting is, you know, when we cheapen the this kind of eucatastrophe or the happy ending, the the you know, the marriage at the end of the of the tale or, or whatever yeah. it may be. When we cheapen it by saying, you know, it sort of a, ties a nice little bow on it, mm-hmm. first of all, then you don't and then you haven't ever been married. <laughs> because it's just the beginning. You're, like you're, it ends with a wedding. <laughs> it doesn't end at the but end. Your your little daughter wears <laughs> cute bows. <laughs> so I mean it just this this fact that goodness is seen to us as unreal mm-hmm. as as some sort of cop out mm-hmm. that that goodness instead of darkness is seen to us as the least likely and yet mm-hmm. as he makes a point of in several places when he's describing this the most universally longed for yeah so there's some weird thing where everybody wishes mm-hmm. these things were true Mm-hmm. I you, I close the book. You need a staff. I want better friends, right? Yeah. We all there's something. It's found something in us that desires that this be true, and yet somehow, even though that is universal across all humanity, that things would end well, that death not have the final word, that darkness not have the last story, um, somehow to even suggest that it is possible or it is finally um, uh, something that we could, we could uh, experience or, or tell somehow is less, is less real, less, <laughs> like that's just such a weird th- 
thing that we've done. I uh, desire dragons with yeah. a profound desire. This is a quote from Tolkien. I mean, you do as well, I know. Oh, yeah. I desire dragons with a profound desire. And what Tolkien says of the catastrophe is this. He says, I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction has long been my feeling that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures, men, in a way fitting to this aspect Mm -hmm. as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. It's almost like the Gospel is the cauldron. Mm -hmm. Uh, They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is this greatest and most complete conceivable you catastrophe. So let's concretize this a bit. So the gospel narrative, you know, incarnation, and 30 years later, uh, Jesus starts gathering up these disciples, and the disciples believe that he is the Messiah, but in a certain way. They have this expectation of a political and ultimately military Messiah, mm-hmm. who will return to Jerusalem, declare himself king, and drive out the Romans, and fulfill what they understand to be, um, you know, messianic prophecy of the restoration mm-hmm. of the Davidic monarchy. A myth of nation and 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 weaponry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he comes to Jerusalem, riding the donkey. This is the anticipation. Uh, all the hosannas are the anticipation of national liberation from the yoke of the Romans. And later that week, he is crucified. And if you are one of these disciples, and your expectation has been of Jesus tossing the Romans out after declaring himself Lord, declaring himself Messiah um, in his return to Jerusalem, um, this is the worst thing that could happen because you have been following a liar. You have been, uh, or, or someone who was insane. You know, this is a true discatastrophe. Uh, this is as low as it gets. Um, you know, not only did this turn out to be a lie, but your life is in danger because you um, had connected yourself with this man. Um, and then three days later, he rises from the dead. And it's almost, you almost cannot believe it's real because it's too good. It's too beautiful. It's too much of what you want. And, and it's too much to understand. And, and so you are in disbelief uh, until it becomes, incre- until you're beginning to live it enough to understand it. And you learn that while there is meaning and value in nationhood, um, there's not ultimate meaning. There's not ultimate value. Nations cannot save. Uh, only Christ can save. And he's only able to save because he was nailed to a cross and killed. And that his return, his triumph over that death, is your triumph over death in an absolute sense. So that, uh, that discatastrophe is revealed after the resurrection or in the resurrection um, as having been the pivotal moment of victory. We did not have eyes to see it when it happened. We could not know it for what it was. 
but in the end we can see it for the good thing, the great good thing that it was. Um, and so that's the catastrophe. It's the inverted catastrophe where you discover that the logic of the story has been different than what you were convinced it was. Um, and, and so Tolkien says that, um, that this narrative, that this story, the story of Christ is the true fairy tale. And it is the, um, it is the biggest piece of meat in the pot. It's the biggest piece of meat in the cauldron story that flavors everything else. And you see the story recapitulated in, in fairy tales in a very, very clear way once you know how to look for it. Mm. So we think about Snow White uh, as a very easy example. If Snow White had not been killed by the queen uh, with the, uh, the poisoned apple that lodges in her throat, she never would have been found by the prince, the, the creepy prince. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she never would have been found by him and she never would have had the ending that she has and the victory over her wicked stepmother, mm. the queen. Um, the victory was only possible because of the seeming or provisional defeat, right. you know, and there's something intensely beautiful about that. Um, so the, the defeat is turned inside out into victory. And, and something that's so wonderful, and I think that this is a grace, um, is that in a story as dark and weird and unsettling as the original Snow White, um, there is still the presence of the gospel hmm. uh, structuring how the narrative unfolds. You know, I think that there's a deeper lesson in that, which is that um, and so many experiences that on the surface, seen uncritically, are, are just dark or just unsettling, contain potential for deeper meaning, for a revelation of, of beauty that has been echoing through the ages. If only uh, we have the grime wiped off of our eyes so that we can see it. He says the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of the history of man, mm -hmm. the resurrection the eucatastrophe of the story of incarnation. This is a story that begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality, mm -hmm. which is what you're saying. Yeah. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, mm -hmm. and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. And that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. There is no other story so many have accepted as true on its own merits. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. Yeah. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, original creation. Mm -hmm. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. I think we're going to close it there. Yeah, I, I think we should. The master has spoken, and <laughs> who are oh, we to? One, one last thing that we cannot forget. A staff. One last thing. Tolkien believed in fairies. <sighs> okay, we're pretty sure that Tolkien genuinely believed fairies existed. And... I have, an, I have an anecdotal story, which I, I should let someone else tell because it was their story. Um, but there is a story of, of a scholar of Tolkien who had given a, a, a paper on this, this essay. 
and she had meticulously sort of analyzed each of its drafts and how it had shifted and changed a little bit over time for this occasion or that occasion and and had kind of followed each of its its variations and at one point uh, so my friend says who was at this particular conference at one point with a straight face uh, unblinking she remarked about a particular draft and she says and i think this is the one in which it became undoubted that he believed and then she moved on and people were like wait what excuse me ma'am believed and she had just made this comment that he seems to at this point um have fully believed that fairies were real mm-hmm. and that they were uh, in and amongst this reality and you could just say good catholic that he is you know mm-hmm. The world is a crowded place, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and 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 evangelicals listening to this will think, are you saying that he saw a demon pretending to be a fairy? Right. You know, because that's what we're right. trying to think. There are no fairies in the Bible. Right. You know, I don't believe in it. Well, there aren't iPhones in the Bible either, Ooh. and they're here. Um, so, producer Zach. Yeah, producer Zach. That. Over there. There are no iPhones in the Bible. Does that mean they're not here? Um, well, and there are powers and principalities. There are powers and principalities, and they are not purely evil um, in any straightforward sense. And they're not purely defined in any straightforward right. de- 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 uh, sense. And uh, Lewis makes much of that in That Hideous Strength yeah. when he describes sort of this the early ages of the world mm-hmm. having creatures and beings that were neither wholly good nor wholly yeah. evil. <laughs> and so the, the thing that is... So maybe we can close on this. The world in which there are fairies is an objectively more beautiful world than one in which there are not. Thus, Mm. there are fairies. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, no, like I would just say like if you have like a pet that you loved Mm -hmm. and you just know... God has to love this pet even more. Yeah, this pet has to has to be somewhere. Yeah, this pet can't just cease to yeah. exist. This pet had something. I don't know if it's a soul, but this pet had something yeah. that wasn't just sort of animated, you know, matter and well, some strange sort of pure instinctual. Well, the, and this is a, this is another thing, Tolkien. Tolkien is it? We could just keep going forever. <laughs> another thing, Tolkien gets I'm into. Sure I'll is, just edit this back. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Tolkien. Tolkien says that, you know, fairy and fairy stories exist to satisfy, you know, primal human desires. Mm-hmm. He desired dragons, dragons with a profound desire. Very profound desire. And yeah, I, I do too. But, uh, but also part of that is the desire to commune with other living things, mm. um, being a deep human desire. And there's another thing where I like to tease my students. You know, I ask them, okay, I, I want to actually see you raise your hands who has desired to have a conversation with one of your pets? Everybody raises their hands. Mm-hmm. And I say, if someone did not raise their hand in this class right now, we would all think that there was something wrong with them. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to say why. <laughs> but we all recognize intuitively that the desire to talk to animals is healthy. Natural. Is, is natural. Is, is something intrinsic to our humanity. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, 
the the fact that the kingdom of heaven is not going to look like the contemporary west <laughs> without um grime yeah. right like that it's it that we don't that we just can't help but sometimes just mirror our very sort of disenchanted world and then put golden streets in you know in yeah. there and be like oh yeah and then maybe a palace whatever that might look like mm-hmm. to you because we don't even have palaces anymore <laughs> i mean literally the language of the scripture is all foreign and and crazy yeah. to us and yeah we forget that we act like we're used to kingdoms you know it's like we desire yeah. kingdoms yeah but we don't know kingdoms we don't <laughs> we are so disconnected from anything like kingdoms you know like and kings and queens and princes and I mean, there's so much of that natural language of the scripture mm-hmm. that is is the language of enchantment uh, in any other key. There, there will be quests in heaven. <laughs> okay. Heaven will be a series of quests. Like, seriously, though, like, all you ever wanted growing up was that The Legend of Zelda was a real thing. Oh, yeah. And that that was a real world. And that there were there were quests to go on and that there were wonderful things and creatures to, to encounter why would you desire that if it yeah. if it was not if it was not as he says part of that inner consistency of reality yeah and you know <laughs> any man who has not desired to commune with other living things and who has not desired to rescue a princess mm. is not a man he's no man he's no man and my friends that's where we are going to conclude our discussion justin thank you for joining me on this episode My friends, as we near the end of season one of this podcast project, we are wondering if there is enough interest and investment, frankly, in our listeners who want to hear a season two. If you are interested in this going forward into a second season, we would ask that you would visit the website from babylonwithlove.com. Click on the donate button for a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation, we would hugely appreciate that. And it would also help us to make that decision about planning and preparing for season two. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars and And that you will subscribe and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.